You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university. In our second episode of this series on what the Bible has to say about pacifism. In fact, does it talk about pacifism really at all? I think in the last episode I mentioned to you that the Bible calls us to be a peaceable people, but not to be pacifists. And I promised you a couple things in these episodes. If you missed that first episode of this series, I would just really encourage you to go back and listen to it. You can find it anytime, vchour.buzzsprout.com. Just Google VC Hour. We're the first thing that comes up on plenty of platforms. You can also find us on Sermon Audio. Really, anywhere you get podcasts, you'll find these episodes. So if you're listening to us on the radio or listening for the first time, it might help you to go back one and kind of hear where we're coming for this. I don't come into this lightly. I didn't come into it because of current events. Looked at this a good number of years and was really just interested in the topic because of challenges to what I believed based on some isolated scriptures, some interactions I had. It raised questions for me, and I want to know the truth. We're about pursuing what's true. And in that, I started reading and looking and thinking about God's Word, and I wanted to share what I found with you. Now, in this series against Christian pacifism, we are only going to look at Christian pacifism. We are not going to look at any of the other versions. I want to be clear about that, so it's no good for you to tell me what uh, other religions, other philosophies do. I'm not going to get into that on these episodes. Find questions to ask or things to know, but not for this series. And secondarily, I mentioned that the Bible, as is true really with all of our episodes, the Bible is the standard. We believe God's Word here. We believe God's Word is for all of God's people. It's for our good. It's for His glory. And in it, we learn about Him, and that tells us about what we should do. There's more to it than that for sure, but there's not less than that. And so if you have questions about whether you think this part or that part really is God's Word or really was God doing something, those are interesting questions, I suppose. I think you'll find those to be fruitless questions in the end. You should trust God's Word, but certainly not questions for this series. We also are not going to look at this from a pragmatic standpoint. I do think it has practical implications, whether or not you are a pacifist. I think a lot of pacifists, as I mentioned in the last episode, believe there are practical ways to live in this world as a pacifist. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's not going to be part of how we address this issue. The truth is true, whether it's easy or whether it's practical for us to live out or not. And so we don't come at it from that angle. I do think that's a valuable way to to think about the question, but we're not going to spend much time on it in this series. And I just want to add here again that while certainly there are people who are pacifists because they're afraid, they're afraid of themselves being in violence, there are people also who are violent people because they're afraid. So we won't say that cowardice is the reason why everyone is a pacifist. That's a tendency a lot of people get into. And I think there are some specific examples I gave in the previous episode of very vocal pacifists who nevertheless lived lives that included elements of great courage. And so for that reason, I, I don't think we can say that everyone's a pacifist just because they're cowards. And we might take Leo Tolstoy, 
Certainly there's a lot of aspects of his theology I do not agree with and have, have problems with, but he often is cited as a Christian pacifist. But he's a decorated war veteran, and he voluntarily engaged in armed conflict a number of times and apparently acquitted himself very well in some very dangerous and deadly situations. So I don't think it's right for us to say it's a product of cowardice. I don't think that's right. So that's not the tact we're going to take. We're going to bring it back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? Because at the end of the day, we should only be pacifists if the Bible encourages us to or gives us the moral freedom to. Likewise, we should also only engage in violence if we find warrant in Scripture for violence. And we should only do it in the ways that it tells us to. So you see, either way, the Scripture is the key. So we're going to go to Scriptures. I'm going to do my best throughout these episodes to give you the voices, the words, as it were, of prominent pacifists. I've read a lot, and for the sake of time, it's always going to be a bit selective. It's not an academic paper I'm reading to you, right? <laughs> There's always more sources I've read and engaged with than I'm able to share for the sake of time. But I am picking what I believe to be the best representation of their positions, and I'm open to engaging. I'm happy to say my first episode has uh, received a little bit of feedback from some listeners. It received some questions about what I thought about Christian history, what I thought about particular passages of Scripture, how to engage with those. And yeah, so I was pretty happy. A lot of good questions out there, and I appreciate that. If you have questions, feel free to contact me. Social media, again, you can find me at VC Hour Official. You can find me on social media. You can also find me at VC Hour Official at gmail.com, where you can reach out by email and ask me questions. And if they're good questions, I'll put them on an episode. Let's get into the passage for today. I'm going to read the passage to you, and then I'm going to start talking about why certain pacifists read this as a way we should think about why we also should be pacifists. If you have your Bible, you could turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Of course, if you're listening by radio, Radio ABC 993FM here in Kampala, Uganda, uh, we're so happy that you're listening to our radio and it's a great part of African Bible University here in Laboa. It's so great that you're listening. I would ask if you're in a situation where you're listening and driving, go look up Romans 5 for yourself later. Just trust me on the words for now, but do read it for yourself. This is what it says. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now listen, that is a beautiful and a powerful scripture, isn't it? I think every single Christian reading or hearing that immediately resonates with what a beautiful passage of scripture it is. I mean, all Scripture is from God. All Scripture is good. There are certain passages that are so packed with theological truths that so immediately impact our experience, especially in relation to our great God, that it's very hard to walk away unmoved when you hear or when you read those passages. And that's just one of them. It begins by telling us that God loves us, loved us as sinners. Remember, sinners are the ones who are in open rebellion against God. So as we were in open rebellion against God, he loved us. And Christ died for us. 
That is, he shed his blood, and the shedding of his blood is the justification of his people. It acts as a justification for his people. His blood washes us clean. He takes on the penalty of death. There's a grand exchange, as it has often been called, in which not only is the penalty of our sin taken away, but instead we receive the righteousness of Christ in its place, so every good thing he did credit to us. Every bad thing we did laid instead on him. That's exactly what it says. It made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. And in that it says, because we've been justified by his blood, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the wrath of God is not against us anymore. There is therefore no condemnation, as a different passage says. No wrath stored up for us. Christ has taken it all. And then it goes on to say, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So what was our state? I use the word sinner because that's what Paul says above. Here it says more specifically enemies. We were enemies of God. And it says that even while we were enemies, the death of his son reconciled us to God. So you know probably from past episodes, maybe from your own studies, that reconciliation is the bringing back together of a broken relationship. And we're told here in Romans, it is the blood of Christ that reconciles us to God. The death of the Son reconciles us to God. In what condition were we in when we were reconciled? This is really interesting because Paul tells us that we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son when we were enemies. That's what it says. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. This clearly is teaching us that we didn't take the first step. God took the first step. We didn't say, God, I want there to be peace. God made peace through the blood of his son while we were still his enemies. And it says much more now that we are reconciled. So what's the result of this reconciliation? Shall we be saved by his life? Paul here connecting a resurrected Christ with the life that we have with God forever. So all the blessings that attain to us are attained in Christ Jesus. If you want to hear more about that topic, I did a episode a couple episodes ago about how to get a blessing. And that's it's all about that. How do I get a blessing? Well, the scriptures teach us. They teach us really really clearly. Go back and listen to that. But we are going to be saved by his life. As he is raised, we are raised. As he is glorified, we too will be glorified. Paul makes all of these connections for us. We don't have to make them for ourselves. And as is rightly pointed out, what was our condition when God did these things for us? The answer is we were enemies. That's what he says. We were enemies when God secured all of those things for us. Now, again, every Christian should read or hear that passage and rejoice because the story there is a people who were against God, God acted on their behalf to save them by reconciling them to himself, putting the wrath that should have been against them on his own son instead, whose blood makes us clean, and then promising us a different life, a life that we can only have in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise. Now, some people have asked, whether or not this impacts how we treat our enemies around us. There are a number of times in Scripture 
where God's treatment of us as his people is used as a parallel to how we ought to treat others. Think, for instance, of forgiveness. Forgiveness. The forgiveness God gives to us, both in parable and in the Sermon on the Mount, are used as examples of how we ought to treat our fellow man. And it's often very strongly correlated to whether or not we are forgiven. So that if you're unwilling to forgive other people, you yourself are not forgiven. So with those types of parallels in mind, some people read passages like Romans 5, these verses, and they come to the conclusion that because God sacrificially saves his own enemies, that we too also must never engage in violence. How is it said? Richard Hayes, I think, puts it really well in his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, when he says, how does God treat enemies? Rather than killing them, Paul declares he gives his son to die for them. This has profound implications for the subsequent behavior of those who are reconciled to God through Jesus' death. To be saved by his life means to enter into a life that recapitulates the pattern of Christ's self-giving. It is evident, then, that those whose lives are reshaped in Christ must deal with enemies in the same way that God in Christ dealt with enemies. And that's a powerful statement. He's essentially saying, if we are redeemed in Christ, then Christ is the pattern of our behavior. And what's Christ's pattern of behavior towards his enemies? The answer is, he died for him. He was self-giving, as Hayes says. And that's how we ought to deal with our enemies, because that's how God in Christ Jesus deals with his enemies. If that were just a general statement about our general disposition towards people who are against us, I, in fact, would wholeheartedly agree. Authors like Sprinkle go on to say, we love our enemies and do good to those who hate us because that's what God does. Sprinkle specifically looks at this passage and says, that the Christian is one that showcases the heart of Jesus who died for his enemies. So you can see where they're going with this. They're saying this isn't a general pattern for us to follow, but an absolute one. That is, because God did this action to save a people, the only right response to it then is for all of us to treat our enemies identically to how God in Christ Jesus treated his enemies as well. I mean, it might stand to reason, wouldn't it, that we should follow God's example. A lot of people come to that conclusion. But I'm going to raise a question for you. We have to ask this question. It certainly is true that our disposition towards others should be mercy, forgiveness, and love. There is no question that the New Testament and the Old Testament, as we'll discover in passages yet to be addressed on this show, but soon to be addressed, we will find time and time again that the Bible's disposition towards others in general is one of love and mercy and forgiveness, even to people who are against us or outside of us. But that's not really the question, is it? The question is, can we infer an absolute prohibition on the use of lethal force? Can we infer an absolute prohibition? By that I mean, Can we take this pattern set out for us in Romans 5 and draw the conclusion from it that there is no situation in which we are allowed to do anything other than sacrifice self or even sacrifice others on behalf of enemies? Remember, 
A prohibition on violence means a pacifist will tell you you're not allowed even to protect a life by taking a life. Wife, children, and so forth. You aren't allowed to protect a life by taking a life. You're not allowed to protect a life by injuring, physically injuring someone else, physically restraining someone else. All these are prohibited. Can we infer from Romans 5 that there's never an appropriate use of violence? Remember, we're using the pacifist definition of violence. I think actually it's a pretty good definition. We're looking specifically at Sprinkle's definition. I would encourage you, if you have a better one, I've read tons of them. Many of them read very, very similarly to this. If you think you have a better one, shoot it to me. We can talk about it. He says, violence is a physical act that is intended to destroy, i.e. injure, a victim by means that overpower the victim's consent. Again, a couple things there. It's physical, it's injurious, meaning it's made to create injury of some kind, and it overpowers the victim's consent. That's the idea of violence. So we should ask ourselves a question. If the pattern is God, did God ever do anything towards his enemies besides saving? That is, did God ever act in a way that the pacifist would describe as violent if he saw a human being doing it? Do you know your Bibles? I hope you do. Let's just take a couple of examples from the Old Testament. I mentioned to you before that many pacifists who are Christian struggle to make use of the Old Testament. And they struggle to make use of it, especially if they believe that all violence is always morally repugnant for all people in all places. The reason they struggle with it is because they see the Old Testament includes a lot of violence. Not only that, it includes violence that God does or that God directly authorizes his people to do. And if you have a general moral prohibition on all violence all the time, it's going to be really hard to square with a few things. Take, for instance, the flood. You remember the story of the flood? Who did the flood? It wasn't Noah. Noah didn't bring the flood, right? God brought the flood. Now, it is interesting, and I've noted this a number of times on my show, it is interesting that the flood came in part because of the level of violence in the world. And so we should, we should rightly believe that unbridled violence is immoral, it's evil. But that same event teaches us that it can't be a general moral prohibition on all violence all the time, and it certainly can't be taught that God is a pacifist. Because, you see, God himself sent the flood. And the flood killed everyone except Noah and his immediate family. Everyone. There's no way to interpret the flood consistently without it meeting the definition of violence. It's a physical act. It certainly destroyed, and it definitely overpowered the victim's consent, meaning nobody there wanted to be destroyed, but they were. That wasn't their desire. They didn't say, hey, come destroy me, but they were. A very, very similar event, very similar type. Maybe you know the story of the Red Sea. Moses and the Egyptians in the book of Exodus are in a conflict over the people of Israel. The people of Israel had been slaves in the land of Egypt for a long time. God sent Moses to rescue the Israelites from the Egyptians. And through a series of events, they were released. But the Egyptians regretted releasing them, wanted them back. Here's a large workforce through slavery. And they wanted them back. They didn't want to give them up. So the Egyptians 
are on one side, the Red Sea is on the other, and the Hebrew people are in between. They're trapped. And how will they get through? Well, God says they just have to stand and watch. What happens? He opens up the waters. Israelites go through like it's dry ground. Egyptians go into where the Israelites had been, and God collapses the sea on these people. Very, very similar to the flood. Multitudes of people drowning. You imagine scores of bodies washing up on shore. This is the hand of God in judgment on those people. He dealt violently with the Egyptians at the Red Sea, and he preserved his people instead. You may also remember the sons of Korah, those rebellious people not operating as God would have them to operate, operating in open rebellion against God and God's anointed. They're swallowed up. It's a clear judgment of God. God does it. God kills them. Now understand, we've already laid out that we believe the Bible. So it's no good to do, as one comedian says, talk about the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, like he likes one of them, but he doesn't like the other one. That's no good. It's the same God. So you see, the same God of Romans is the same God of Exodus. It's the same God. It's no good for us to go to Romans 5 and for us to say, this is the earmark for all of us because this is exactly how God is, and ignore the rest of the things God reveals about himself, about how he is. Some of you might say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? That's a good question. Acts chapter 5 actually tells us a story there in the New Testament of Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira claimed to have sold their property and turned the money all over to the church, but actually retained it, some of it for themselves. Both of them fall dead. Very, very similar to the Sons of Korah incident. Because they lied against God, they died. They were struck down. This is God doing this. Now, some of you, that's really going to rattle you, the idea that God interacts in human history in this type of way with people. And yet, that's exactly what the scriptures teach. So what should bend? Should your theology bend, or should the Bible bend to your theology? I think to ask is to answer, isn't it? Our theology should be built on God's Word. And so if we have a theology that says God never interacts in human history to strike anyone down, you're going to find that the Bible disagrees with you. The Bible clearly tells us that Ananias and Sapphira were struck down for their lies against God. Not by Peter. Not by the New Testament church. They dropped dead. Or maybe you remember Herod. Herod shows up a couple times in the Bible, but the end of him is in Acts chapter 12. We find he very arrogantly basks in his pride, and the angel of the Lord strikes him down. That's the hand of the Lord through his messenger. There he is struck down. That's Acts chapter 12. Read it for yourself. Old Testament, New Testament, we could go to many more examples. If you think about it, you can think of even more God interacting in human history to strike people down, to take their lives. Those two are acting as enemies of God, and they too are struck down. Think of what the revelation of Jesus Christ, that last book in our canon, what it tells us, the imagery there of four horsemen, what it tells us of the seven trumpets and the seven plagues, We see an image of a conquering Christ who vanquishes his enemies. Clearly, the picture is a strong picture. Do you know that God himself is described as a man of war? The Lord is a man of war, we're told. Yeah, again, you can see this for yourself. Go to Exodus chapter 15. One of the responses to the Red Sea incident, where the Egyptians were swallowed up by the sea, is this Song of Moses. And in the Song of Moses, 
Moses sings that the Lord is a man of war. Why? Because the Lord was his salvation and the salvation of his people, and he rightly recognizes that salvation came through a God who conquered his enemies. The Lord is a man of war. So there are times when people come in conflict with God, the scriptures are clear that he conquers those people. Not only that, but think about the reality of hell. What does hell describe to us? In Revelation 21.8, it's described as an eternal fiery lake. An eternal, forever and ever, fiery, full of burning lake. A blazing furnace, we hear Jesus say in Matthew 13. Not once, but twice, that it's a blazing furnace. It's described in Matthew 25, Mark 9, and in Jude verse 7 as an unquenched fire. An unquenched fire. 2 Peter 2.4 says there's chains of darkness. Mark 9 describes as an undying worms. We could go on and on. There are more descriptions than those. I think that's pretty graphic, isn't it? It's hard to deal with. I would say the reality is most Christians don't really think about the reality of hell as we ought to. That it's a terrifying place. It really is. Now let's think back to Preston Sprinkle's definition of violence. Is it physical? Well, this seems to indicate that hell is a physical place. Does it injure? It's a fiery lake, a blazing furnace, an unquenched fire where you're put in chains of darkness and there's undying worms that consume. Yeah, it sounds injurious. It sounds like it injures. Without their consent, you'd have to have a strange idea of consent to assume that those who are in torment there want to experience what they're experiencing. They may not want God, but it's a stretch to say they want that fiery furnace. In fact, the one story we have that sort of gives us a peek into what it might look like, the guy wants out. He wants out, and he wants to make sure nobody else comes there. Even the loosest definition, really, of what violence would be would have to lead us to believe that, in fact, hell is violence. And honestly, even the reality of death itself is a just violence. Just as hell is just, it's a just punishment for sin. Death itself so is a just violence. How can we say that? Well, death itself is a result of transgression of God's law, and it was imposed, right? Remember that story. From the beginning, we were taught, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the original do this and live. Don't eat that fruit, you're going to live. You eat the fruit, you're going to die. And that's why Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. It's very clear. It's very, very clear. The wages of sin is death. That's what happens to us. This leads some to want to try to change what the nature of death is or nature of hell is, because when you see it for what it is, it's very hard to say that violence is always immoral in such a way that it was defined by Sprinkle and others very similarly. When we look at the nature of God himself, we see him imposing these things, just wrath, hell, temporal punishment. And so we have to look at Romans 5 in the fuller context the fuller context being all of Scripture. You see, those who are saying Romans 5, they're giving you this beautiful and blessed story that's true, but they're drawing a wrong conclusion from it. They're drawing the conclusion that because God has worked in history to save his enemies, even sacrificing his own son to do so, that the only right conclusion for that is that we must draw from God's character and the way that we treat other people, but they have only incompletely described God's character. God's character includes all of the other things that God has done in the world as well, 
including subduing his enemies. Those two have happened as well. So we can ask ourselves, is God always only acting nonviolently with his enemies? Well, what does God say? Interestingly, a lot of pacifists go to Romans 12:19 to try to prove that we should be pacifists. Listen to what it says. It says, "Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay," says the Lord. What an amazing thing. So what does that passage tell us? Romans 12 is teaching us that we don't take vengeance in our own hands. And as I've mentioned in previous episodes, that's because we can't be trusted with it. We can't be injured and then be expected to turn around and act proportionately. So instead, God reserves the right of vengeance for himself. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this, by the way, undermines any pacifist who believe that God himself is pacifist or that all violence is always immoral. We can't say that because God himself says vengeance is his to exact, and he will do it. He says it more than one time. So another way of saying this is God is not against vengeance. He reserves vengeance for himself. Now, interestingly, we're going to find that the context of Romans 19 is that it flows into Romans 13, where God describes for us that his temporal judgment of vengeance on this earth is in the hands of his servants. And who are his servants? Well, he says it's the government that governs rightly, that upholds good and resists evil. Those are his servants to execute his vengeance here on earth. They bear not the sword in vain. And this will connect us back to the early chapters of Genesis where we find out that's where God gave certain, delegated certain authorities to human beings to exact in this world. But not for me to get personal vengeance for myself, but instead for some to exact God's punishment on people in this life. But minimally, you cannot say God is always and only acting nonviolently with his enemies because he himself promises he will repay. So all the promises of God are true. We can say that our actions are not always analogous. They're not always exactly the same as God's actions. We can say that. But you see, that undermines the original point, doesn't it? So a person here who says, listen, it's not for you to do it. It's for God to do it. That's fine. But then you can't say to me that I have exactly the same disposition that God has because you've already told me I'm not to act at certain times in the way that God does. You're going to have to set up some clearer parameters there. So how do we reconcile all of this with Romans 5? The pacifist tendency when confronted with the reality of a God who acts in human history in order to destroy people, kill people, send them to hell, punish them with death, is fairly predictable. So some of them will try to divorce the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we soundly reject that. That's just the wrong way to think of Scripture, and we're going to find time after time far more continuity between Scripture than discontinuity. But a lot of times, especially when they're thinking of death and hell, the pacifist tendency is to reject hell. And it seems to me, precisely because the existence of hell tells us there is a God who exacts physical punishments against his enemies. And they have a hard time squaring that with Romans chapter 5. They need Romans 5 to be telling you that you 
can never use violence because God never uses violence. But if you read the Bible, that's just simply not the case. So the two ways they usually go are universalism and annihilationism. And what that means is universalism is this idea that everybody everywhere will get saved, that all are already reconciled or that all will be reconciled in the future. But as we've read together, as we've heard from God's Word, and you can read for yourself, the Scriptures are clearly against this position. Not everyone will be saved. In fact, again, Jesus tells the story of someone who's not saved and who's suffering as a result of it. And Jesus repeatedly warns us against a life in which we find ourselves in danger of hell. He warns us not to act in certain ways, because if we do, we will go to hell. And we get vivid imagery, vivid pictures of what it's like. And it's no good to say it's just figurative language, because there's a reality, even if it is just figurative language, which I am not at all conceding, but even if it were only figurative language, there is a harsh reality behind it that's being communicated, and you can't get your way around it by positing that actually in the end everyone's going to get saved. The scriptures are very clear. There is a sorting between people, that there are lost and that there are saved, that there are sheep, there are goats. There are people who are wheat and those who are tares, that is, weeds. And that the angels themselves will come in, in some of those passages, it describes it as being a separation of those two. It's clear that not everyone is a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. Some are and some are not. Universalism, clearly, not true. Others take annihilationism, and this idea that, yes, not everyone will be saved, they'll say, but all will cease to exist at death, meaning some people who don't believe in God, their punishment rather than hell, they'll say, is to cease to exist, that the guilty cease to exist at death. Now, some will say that the guilty cease to exist after some appropriate level of punishment most pacifists that I've read reject that view of hell because it still includes some suffering, and there's a knowledge there that the suffering itself is problematic for their position. Is the Bible annihilationist? Well, the parallel that's used in Scripture is that in whatever sense our reward is eternal, our punishment is also eternal. So if you think the life that you'll have is eternal, it uses an identical word in the same passage to describe our punishment if we're not in Christ Jesus. Annihilationism doesn't really make any sense. There's a lot of other passages we could go to for that. Let's get back to Romans chapter 5. This is what it says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Lengthier version of the same passage I read before, but let me raise this question. That passage repeatedly refers to we or us. We were still weak. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have now been justified. 
We have been saved. We were reconciled, and so forth. And so we should ask ourselves, who are the we and the us? Who are the we and the us? Well, we don't have to wonder. The Apostle Paul lets us know. If you read Romans chapter 1, he tells us who this letter is addressed to. It's to the Romans who were loved by God and called to be saints. This letter is written to the people that God loves and called to be saints. The beauty of God is that God loves his enemies. That's true. And the beauty of God is that he called some of those to be his people. And Christ died for those people. But the rest of the world, those who remain in their trespasses and sin, those who remain in rebellion against God, they will encounter the fiery wrath of God, an unquenchable flame and a worm that never dies as they are held in chains of darkness forever. That is a terrible and yet a just and true response. It's difficult to even contemplate it, and yet it tells us volumes about the holiness of our God and the affront we have given him by living in rebellion, and it makes the miracle of our salvation so much greater, so great in fact, that our general disposition towards our enemies should look like his, where we should be merciful to others. We should be forgiving, and we should be quick to cancel a debt. But the one thing it doesn't tell us, it cannot teach us this because it's based on something that's not true. It's incomplete. It cannot tell us that pacifism is the answer in every situation. And the reason it can't tell us that is because the God of Romans 5 is the God of Exodus 15, who is himself that Lord that, who is the man of war. You see, our God wins in the end. There is no question about it. For those who are in Christ Jesus, his victory will be because he has made his enemies his own children, has changed their natures in sanctification, and he raises them to the heavenlies to be with him forever, glorified as the Son is glorified. But those who remain in their trespasses and in their sins, those enemies of God who stay in open rebellion, they will taste his wrath forever. And so we find in God a God who is just, who cares for his people, who pays just recompense, who saves his children whom he calls his own, and who punishes his enemies forever and ever. That is a God who is worthy of worship. And we ought to live in accordance with his word. I hope you will follow me in future episodes. We're going to continue through passages of Scripture. I find it very edifying to think in general about what God's Word has to say, but also to think about what it tells us about how we ought to live in the world. And that's exactly what we're doing in this series. Praise be to God. He hasn't left us without a word. He's told us how we ought to live. He's told us how who He is, and we thank Him for it. You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university. <laughs>